Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm in our Hammersmith offices with Rocks Back Pages co-founder, Mark Pringle. Hi, Mark. Hi, Barney. Meanwhile, our colleague, Jasper Murison bow is in Cornwall. Hi, Jasper. Hello, Barney. And our guest for this episode is in Edinburgh. A warm welcome to the wonderful Vashti Bunyan. Hello. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely to see you, Vashti. We're thrilled to host you today, not just because we love your magical music, but because you've just published a very special memoir called Wayward, which, among other things, tells the extraordinary story of how you travel all the way from, was it Essex or Sussex? It was south of London. It was Sidcup. Sidcup, Sidcup, right, all the way from Sidcup to the Outer Hebrides in a horse-drawn wagon. So we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, I thought we should start with, because the phrase leapt out at me, I think you credit it to Andrew Lou Goldham, to start with your childhood and the expensive orphanage <laughs> that you were sent to as a child how do you how do you remember your childhood and when when did music first come into your childhood Vashti oh I think it was my father uh, with his huge collection of 78s all classical music and so it's all in my head but I haven't a clue what anything was or who anything was by but it was yeah it filled my childhood and then of course I became enamoured with with pop music throughout my teen years, I think, uh, Everly Brothers and, dare I say it, Cliff Richard and The Shadows and, well, yes, all yes. of that, yes, which I've only recently come to admit. <laughs> <laughs> why? Was it a, why was it such a dark secret, Vashti? <laughs> <laughs> because he is so uncool for such a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you, you you say it, but move it's a fantastic. It's thing. it's wonderful. It is wonderful. It's a really great British rock and roll yeah. record, and unfortunately, yeah. it's what it's what happened to Cliff after. Exactly, we'll draw draw a veil. Exactly, over. and so that's what I've done for most of my life <laughs> <laughs> until relatively recently. When yeah. So the veil has now been yanked aside, <laughs> yes. and you write about seeing Cliff in Blackpool in yeah. 1961, I yeah, think. Yeah, I was 16, and I was, uh, through some friends of my parents, I was allowed to go back and get an autograph photograph. Uh, having just seen him on stage, when before I just, you know, it was black and white TV, and to see somebody live on the stage was amazing for me. Uh, so I went back expecting to see this great star, and he was just so angry-looking and so cross and so uh, dark-eyed and scowling at everybody at this room full of, of, of people you know drinking and smoking and having a lovely time and he was just sulking in the corner more or less and I felt really sorry for him and I, I was only 16 but I felt really sad for him that he wasn't enjoying who he was and what he was doing. It's a very interesting revelation about the nature of being a being a, a star in those days, or yes. at any time. Yes, I know. And, and yes, and maybe he... Well, I found out recently, 
through Bob Stanley that actually his father had just died. And that was maybe why oh. he was so oh. upset and that he was being made to do these shows, even though he was grieving. Mm. Um, so that kind of explains it to me and makes me feel a bit sad about what I've said about him. But, well, <laughs> <you know. laughs> I mean, it's, it's also possible that, that not just that, but his general experience as a young pop star is what drove him into the arms of the Lord as he sort of subsequently did. Absolutely. I'm sure you know, that's I, right. I'm sure that's right. Some people take drugs. Some people get God and he, he got God. He definitely got God. Yeah. <laughs> but seeing him like that didn't sort of serve as a cautionary tale for you as far as wanting to get into the music industry. You mm. seem to seem to nevertheless it didn't wanted put me it. off. No, <laughs> no, it didn't. It was all fascinating to me. Completely fascinating. And the film Expresso Bongo was what really set me off really wanting that world you know even though it was mm. sleazy and sleazy Soho yeah I was fascinated by it probably because I was never allowed to go there to down to Soho Ooh. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so of course it appealed and yeah the whole the whole world of pop music completely appealed that's what I wanted Vashti, something fascinates me, which is when you were first singing, and I believe, I'm assuming it was a trio, the three of us, you were singing like Everly's and Buddy Holly songs. Yeah. I mean, how close was your singing voice at that time to the very unique instrument that, it, you know, we know and, uh -huh. and that I assume it still is? I think pretty close. The recordings I made not long after that, yeah, they're... I think my voice remained the same, really, for, right. for a very long time, even when I right. started again. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, you talk about the demo recordings, and, of course, that did take you into Sleazy Soho, or at least the other side of the Charing Cross Road, yeah, Denmark, Denmark Street. Street. Yeah. <laughs> yes. oh. yeah, so tell us, tell us how you came into, you know, the world of, of recording, recording songs. I just terribly wanted to make singles i wanted to record my own songs as singles and i thought that they they would work and i still think they would have <laughs> i did go up and down denmark street knocking on doors trying to find somebody who might be interested in my songs but i was i was very young i had a guitar with me i didn't look like your normal girl pop singer at all, but with my holy jumper and uh, yeah, and probably scowling face. But uh, yeah, they they, they they just said no, sorry, not commercial, you know. And I I didn't, I wouldn't have looked great in a in a ball gown, so I was I was sent away with with pats on the backside, you know, very nice dear, yeah. but but really not commercial. So yeah. Yeah, and then I came across Andrew Lou Golden. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> what a person to come across. <laughs> oh, yeah, unforgettable, unforgettable. And he was only 21 and you were only 20. It's extraordinary yes. to think, you know, know. how young you, you both were. What a mover and shaker he already he was. He really was, yes, mm, yes. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I loved about it, that uh, these young people were 
sweeping aside the old guys and taking it on for themselves. It was a wonderful, yes. wonderful feeling. When we listen to those early records you made, you know, on, under Andrew's aegis, I mean, is it is it fair or is it a bit crass to say that he thought, oh, I've got a dark version of, of Marianne Faithful. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Did you feel that, that you were somehow being kind of groomed for that role? No, I had no idea. I mean, it's okay. far too dumb to even think in those terms. But I think, well, since he has said that, no, that wasn't his idea, that he did know that I was different. But once the press got hold of the story, it, that I was a dark-haired replacement for Marianne Faithful, <laughs> it, it went off, you know, that, and, and there was no getting it back. Once that, yeah, once, yeah. once that was there... And it, it has followed me all my life, you know, that, that that's what I was. And yet he, he says now, no, that wasn't his intention. So I have to believe that. <laughs> but in a way, you defined yourself in opposition to that, didn't you? I mean, yeah. you know, what, what we know, I mean, particularly just another diamond day mm. is, is, is what happens when you, you choose not to be the, the dark haired Marianne. Yes. In yeah. a way, right? Yeah. Well, I think it happened even before that. Uh, when I made Train Song, which was my second single, that it, I had left Andrew's world by then. And I just wanted something really simple. And it was just uh, two guitars and a double bass and a cello. Um, and that was what I wanted, really, in contrast to, to Andrew's world. But, of course, it didn't yes. work because it didn't get any publicity at all. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I was really struck. I, I love the book, by the way. Um, as one of artists in a, lovely, in a, in a day book. flat. The one thing that's very clear in the book is you had very strong ideas about what you wanted to do. And getting men in particular to accept your ideas was a struggle throughout uh-huh. that sort of period, yeah. you know, whether it's with Andrew Oldham or later with Joe Boyd, mm-hmm. as it was a, it was a thing. Uh, and and I'm, I'm really struck by how clear you were. I mean, a lot of people were going to pop in those days and be happily manipulated and pushed around by producers and so on and so forth. And you didn't like that, did you? No, I didn't. But then there was nothing much I could do about it at the time yeah. because the producer at that time was king. You know, whether yeah. it was a man or a woman, the producer was the person who shaped mm-hmm. you. And, and uh, there was no getting away from that at the time. Of course, it's changed now. <laughs> but uh, at that point, I don't like to blame the fact that I was a girl for my failure. I blame myself for not being the right, right kind of person to take it on. Mm-hmm. And yes, it was true that most of the people who were in control at the time were not women, but there were some. I mean, Sandy Shaw's manager was a woman. Yes, of course. And so, yeah. it, you know, it's, it's not, not so cut and dried. It's not so black and white. And looking mm-hmm. back on my own time, I don't blame anything for the fact that I didn't break through. It was me. I was, you know, I was shy. I didn't ever speak yeah. to anybody if I could help it. So, you know, it's not surprising that I didn't get through myself. Sure. It is extraordinary to look back and remember that some things just stick in your mind was a song written by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. And, and on the session, you had Jimmy Page, John McLaughlin, yeah. <laughs> and Big Jim Sullivan playing guitar. Yeah. Nicky Hopkins, Hopkins on yeah. piano. I'm assuming it was probably Clem Catini on drums. I can't remember if it was Clem Catini. I don't um, know. But I mean, 
this was the this is the creme de la creme yes. of the sort of London session world of the time, wasn't it? It was. They were session players. And of yeah, course yeah. I I knew nothing about anything really. <laughs> and and yet looking back and thinking those people were actually at that uh, playing on that session. When I listen to it now and I can hear all those different instruments and Nicky Hopkins particularly, I just it was a fantastic session. It was a fantastic yeah song beautiful song yeah yeah but nah didn't work <laughs> <laughs> I also love the story, which kind of reminds me a little bit of the way Andrew stuck Mick and Keith in a room and ordered them to write a song, which was the only original, I think, on their debut album. And and, and I think in your book, you say he, he shoved you in a room with a copy of Pat Sounds, mm-hmm. an album by Tim Hardy yeah. and an album by the Mamas and the Papas yeah. and said, write some songs. Yeah, write something. <laughs> and I think, yeah. You, yeah. In between, he said, write something in between all these three. And put me in a room with a piano. Easy. With a piano. I don't play the piano. (laughs) (laughs) It was completely crazy. And so, yeah, I just took those albums away and uh, left. (laughs) (laughs) You've still got them, haven't you? Yeah, Uh, I think Andrew wants them back. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I, I left them with my brother and I think that maybe one of my nieces might have them now and i'm beginning to find (laughs) out yeah yeah lovely lovely let's talk a bit about folk music because you're very i mean you i think you say at various points and you've said in interviews you know you spent your life trying to escape from being classified as 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 a folk singer yeah and you write in the book about alistair clare and cecil sharp house and you say you could find no place in in the folk world Mm -hmm. even though i think you know i mean even i would listen to 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 some of your music and and sort of hear it as a as a version of folk if not freak folk Uh to use that label but what 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 do you think made you kind of struggle with with that world and that classification, Vashti? I think because I didn't fit in to either. I, I wasn't I wasn't folky enough for the folk world, mm-hmm. and I wasn't uh, insistent enough for the pop world. Right. So I didn't I didn't fit anywhere. And so when now I'm described as a folk singer. It sets up something in me that I, I was never a folk singer. I was never a folk singer. I am not a folk singer. And I, I don't know why it affects me so badly, but it does. I can't. Yeah, it's interesting. It. It, it, it really is interesting. Because, I, mean, I, I mean, you know, listening to your stuff, the, the, your third album, Hartley, mm. to me, sort of, I mean, which is an extraordinary record because this is someone at your stage, as your age, dare I say it, learning to use this technology to record on computers and so on and so forth. And I can hear in that you sort of trying to establish what you wanted to do back in 1966. Or yes, whenever. exactly. Exactly. That is what I wanted to do. 
Right, and it, you know, it doesn't sound like folk music to me at all. Oh, I mean, uh, thank you. She's going to stay now. She's, yeah. she's not going to leave. All right. Having said that, I, I absolutely uh, love Just Another Diamond Day. You know, we'll talk about Joe Boyd more in a minute, but um, in your book, you sort of complain about how you dislike the sound of your voice on that record. And I think your voice sounds sensational <laughs> on that record. <laughs> the, the Jerry Boyce is one of the great engineers who went on to do um, all the Buena Vista Social Club stuff and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Just recorded your voice beautifully. Yeah, I know. Well, I know that now, but, you know, for many years... <laughs> 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 I couldn't listen to it. I couldn't listen to it for 30 right. years. So, But now I can listen to it and I can see how Joe produced it. I can see how Jerry Boys recorded it. And mm-hmm. I have huge appreciation for that now. But at, at right. the time, it wasn't what I had yeah, in my yeah. head and I couldn't, mm-hmm. I couldn't accept it. Do you think that part of your reaction to folk or against folk was kind of the Cecil Sharp house was very much looking backwards to a tradition mm. whereas you were so keen as we've already talked about you were so driven to write your own material and put yes, it out there yes and I, I think I said in the book it was like it was pickled in aspic all of those beautiful yeah. old songs beautiful songs but I couldn't see the point of doing them again you know or, or, yeah. or of yeah. repeating mm-hmm. all of that or even recording them in my own way I, I didn't it just never crossed my mind yeah. to do that yeah I mean, it's interesting that actually some of the musicians you did work with and was problematic for you in that they were regarded as folk musicians uh-huh. were actually having the same battle themselves. When I think of people like Fairport Convention, mm-hmm. the early Incredible String Band, mm-hmm. these were people who, yes, they were aware of the folk tradition, but they wanted to do something quite yes. different as well. Yes. Of course, they, they did. And, yeah, it, it's really difficult when you're when you're told you're something. <laughs> 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 And you read about being that all the time. You read it, read it, read it, Mm. folk, 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 folk. It's really hard to get away from, really hard. And Joe did apologise to me, but he he said that, you know, he knew that he'd made, (laughs) he'd condemned me to being a folk singer for always by bringing the string band and Fairport into the, the recordings. But that the where he had met me, or at least not met me, but where he had seen me with a horse and a cart and a dog and a horn and all of those things in a field, he says, it was the most folky kind of life he'd ever seen. <laughs> but then, you know, yes. he came from Harvard. And so, you know, of course, it seemed to him like I was being a traditional folky. And of course, later he realized I wasn't. But and so he apologized to me that, 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 that he knew that it was his fault that I'd been labeled this way. But I, yeah, I I had to accept his apology. <laughs> you had already done your spectacular bunk from London before you started <laughs> recording that album. Tell yes. our listeners why you did that. Why did you leave London? Why did you buy this horse and cart from a travelling? Wow. Why? Why? Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> she still doesn't know. <laughs> I think I thought there was nothing else I could do. You know, I, I felt that I had tried my hardest to make my way with my own songs, and that I mm-hmm. had failed dismally. And you know, there were three recordings that I'd done for Andrew that were going to be released and were going to be great, and then they weren't. And then another one that was going to be great, and then it wasn't. And by the time the third one came along and was shelved, I couldn't stand it anymore. And I had to give it up. 
I had to I had to accept that I was no good at this. And so I went into a bit of a nosedive and it ended up with my father kicking me out of the house with my dog because he'd uh, well, anyway, I won't go into that. But um, Mm -hmm. I had to I had to leave. I had either my dog had to go or I had to go. So I went. And I had met this amazing art student called Robert Lewis, who was hitchhiking a year before this all happened. I reconnected Mm -hmm. with him. He was living in a wood behind the art school that he attended under a rhododendron bush. And (laughs) at the time, I felt that was the only thing I could do was to go and join him there. And in fact, it was great until the Bank of England, whose land we were on, threw us out. (laughs) It was really sad because we'd made a beautiful place for ourselves in the middle of this wood. But anyway, we we had to leave. And it was when we left that wood that we actually decided that it would be good to have a house on wheels because then when people moved us on, it'd Mm -hmm. be safe. And at that particular moment, we found an old bread van, a horse-drawn bread van. Yeah. And a horse. And, you know, just one thing led to another, and off we went. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it seems extraordinary now, but at the time, it didn't seem extraordinary. It just seemed like the only thing I could do. Yeah. Is that because people were going back to the land, that there was that sort of hippie dream of mm. a, a kind of pastoral life, an unplugged life? So yeah. in the context, it didn't seem like such a hardship to, to be. Because, I mean, it, it, the story of getting to the Outer Hebrides is like, I mean, I would have given up. I would have given up by the time we got to Hemel Hempstead. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. My my brother always said, "We thought you'd give up when you got to Bishop Stortford." I don't know where that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, you, I don't think I would have been aware of that, you know, back to the country movement at the time. But clearly, it was okay. fairly general, and it was because Robert was at art school with people who had grown up with Donovan and so we met Donovan and mm-hmm. he had bought these islands off the west coast of Scotland off off Skye yes. and he wanted to to create some kind of not, not exactly community but just like-minded people taking up the old crofts and the ruins in that area and we thought that was a great idea and so that's what we set off towards was finding a, a way to live away from London mm-hmm where life could be much simpler. And then, of course, you get there, and he more, eventually you get there, and he more or less tells you to bugger off, doesn't he? Well. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't him that told us to bugger off, really. It was just that it was very clear there wasn't a place for us. Right. All the people who had gone with him the year and a half before when they set off in the Land Rover and we set off in a horse and cart, um, all the people who had done what he wanted uh, were really more or less gone away apart from just a few people and he in that time had become immensely successful and was filling yeah. stadiums in America and was really successful and so he hardly ever spent any time on Sky and he just happened to be there when we arrived which was uh, absolutely crazy ridiculous but this, yes there he was I sang Rainbow River to him with his guitar and it was pretty clear that his life had moved on Roberts and my life had completely changed being on that mm-hmm. journey the, the education that we had and the people that we had become 
And it was very clear that, yeah, this isn't what we came towards. This isn't what we did this for. Mm. So we carried mm. on and, and made more or less made a life of our own away from it. Yeah. The Rainbow River is a laughing stream down in a valley by a mountain that is pine tree tall. The Rainbow River has a small boy fishing with a worm and a jam jar by the waterfall. I wanted to mention this thing that Robert, your boyfriend, says to you along the lines of, why don't you? I think why don't you stop writing those miserable love songs and write about what's around you? Yeah. And I'm wondering how important that was because although I think you had written the beautiful glowworms already at that point, yeah. you do then start writing these much more personal and you know and 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 some cases quite eccentric songs <laughs> that really talk about this life yeah. on the road and yeah. in the Outer Hebrides. So I mean, was that an important moment? Did that make yeah. Did that change direction for you a little bit? Hugely, hugely. And, yes. and I, looking back, I don't know if it was the right thing for him to do or if it was mm. not the right thing for him to do, but it definitely changed my songwriting into something, I think, with, with a, a, a bit of an ear to whether he would approve of it or whether he would go along with it. A lot of the songs, well, actually, three of the songs, the words were written by him. Uh, and yes. I just wrote the tunes. But yes, they became narrative. They became dreamlike fantasies. They, they were, you know, I, I wasn't thinking ever of recording them. I was never going to set foot in a recording studio again. <laughs> <laughs> but they were just, I was writing about what I was finding. And I was also writing about the dream of getting there and trying to make it into a happier kind of experience than it actually was and right. trying to comfort myself with them really mm-hmm, and right. I think that that maybe comes across that they're comforting songs yes apparently they make babies go to sleep which really pleases me <laughs> <laughs> if all else fails even if you don't uh, love yeah, just another time yeah, and just, day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if that doesn't work oh dear <laughs> then it's the baby's fault yes <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yes. I mean, it's, 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 it was extraordinary listening to that album whilst reading your book. And mm. the, 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 the two things fit together perfectly. Your, your written narrative and, and what you're listening to just sort of slot together extraordinarily mm. well. Oh, I'm glad you found that because that, that was really what I kind of wanted. Right. In the way that the songs are kind of condensed. Um, yeah. They don't dwell too much on on things i wanted the, the book to be like that so there was so much more i could have said but i, yeah. I didn't want to I, I wanted to make it a picture really yeah in the same way the album so you know we have sort of 30 you have three children you build various lives in various different places at, at different times yeah. uh, the one thing that i read and felt actually quite really saddened and upset by is you saying how you didn't play and sing to your children oh, i know I know I didn't. I didn't. Music became such a. a, a oh dear, it sounds really pathetic, but it was just painful. <laughs> yeah, and because it reminded me of my own big failure in the th- in the place where I wanted to be, 
within mm-hmm. music and musicians and, and recorded music and that I hadn't hadn't done it. And so listening to other people was really painful. So I didn't, we, we had very little music in their growing up times. I certainly never sang to them and I didn't want them to know about the album or anything that had gone before that. I, right. I kept it from them. Right. They found an old dusty tape copy of the album in the back of a drawer and took it out to the car to play it. That was the only tape player we had. And they took it out to the car to play it secretly. Wow. And I didn't know that until quite a, well, a few years ago that my daughter told me that's what they did. That's amazing. Mm. Children will find things, won't they? They, they, (laughs) You can't keep any secrets from the kids. No, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Well, you know, there's a difference between hearing your your mother's album and me discovering my father's war medals. I mean, I know which one I'd have preferred to have discovered. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I did want to actually ask you about your very unique melodic sense you know on the songs on just another diamond day it's Mm -hmm. such a distinctive obviously your voice is utterly unique but i always find your melodies so beautiful and so unusual and i just wondered if if there was anything any explanation for that or anything that you drew on that shaped your melodic sense vashti i think carols probably carols and hymns from when I was a child I just used to belt them out (laughs) Um, I loved them I loved them and I think I I hear quite a lot of of that in in my songs (laughs) I don't know I I really don't know they just they just appear and I'm sure every songwriter is the same it's just an amalgam of everything they've ever heard in their lives in your book you say that you're done with doing it anymore but are you still writing songs no no, not at all. no, not at all. The last song I wrote was Hartley, and right. I, I kind of knew when I was putting it together that this might be the last thing that I ever write, the last song that I ever write, because it seemed to say everything I wanted to say. How um, extraordinary. And then I started writing the book. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so different, so, so different. Yeah. And I don't know how easy it would be or, or if, how possible it would be to get back to that that kind of the, the lyrics you know I think I found it really difficult with with the with the book that my words were misinterpreted maybe by an editor and maybe made into something else but lyrics are lyrics and they never get mm-hmm. changed so, mm-hmm. so it's maybe unsettled me a bit that words can be so so misinterpreted and so misunderstood yeah. if they're not really straightforward and and that's what I really liked about songwriting, of course, that, that they're just straight. And if people understand, they do. And if they don't, it doesn't matter. But with a book, it's probably more important. Yeah. One thing that's interesting is, is that it seems that you write, you could write songs when you had something sort of specific to write about. Mm-hmm. And so clearly the whole journey up to Scotland and so on and so forth was an enormous amount to write about. As you say, a way of processing what was often quite clearly quite unhappy times and so on and so yeah. forth and then your two more most recent more recent albums original material is a is it as much about your new life your new relationship and so on and so forth so that you had something to write about yes yes because i didn't write anything at all from diamond day up until uh, diamond day w- was reissued and 
2000. Right. So from 1970 to 2000, I never wrote another song. It kind of coincided with the last child bleeding home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but it also coincided with the better response to Diamond Day. Yes. And that, that unlocked something. I don't know. I think Diamond Day was looking forward so much. Mm-hmm. And then Look Aftering was, was, as you say, processing all, yeah. <laughs> all of those last 30 years. Uh, it was looking back. And, and then once I'd done with that, those, those sort of bookends, I felt much freer to just write what I was feeling rather than, yeah. rather than the story, a yes. story about any, anyone. Although in Hartley, there are a few stories about people, but they're how I felt about the people. Right. It was much more, much more about emotions, I think, rather than the stories, rather than the narrative. Actually, having walked away from pop music in the way that you did and then as it were putting just another diamond day you know in a bottom drawer and (laughs) forgetting completely about it what was your first sense that this album was somehow going to be kind of resurrected and become this 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 cult object and sort of you know the, the featured writer on our homepage this week is Jude Rogers and who interviewed you recently for the Guardian lovely yes. Jude we had lovely her on Jude. the podcast yeah and she talks about you in this piece as you know that that album the reissue of that album by by Spinney spearheaded a wholesale kind of rediscovery of what she calls lost ladies of folk which is not, not, not a phrase that in, would endear itself to you um, but when did when did you say oh my god you know I thought that no one was ever going to talk about me again and suddenly I'm you know I'm this sort of cult figure I mean was that a strange experience really strange and and I don't think I took it in really Right. Because for 30 years, I had completely ignored this album and tried hard to forget about all of that. It stayed with me. And even now, when somebody says that they know the album, I think, why? <laughs> 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 and when I listen to it, well, if I read something lovely written about it or said about it, and then I hear a snippet of one of the songs, I think, are they really talking about that? It's mm. it, it's it it's in with the bricks that nobody knows the music, and so it was never a sort of wow, wow. People know about it now. It was just really. <laughs> I, I don't I don't understand why, but it's taken me a long time to understand and to try to hear that album as it is heard now, and not yes. as it was rejected then. I still find it quite difficult to understand what has happened to it, even now. Mm. Ironically, there's there's almost a sort of parallel with Marianne Faithful, who has been like, adopted by so many, you know, musicians from younger generations. Yes. You know, whether it's whether it's Beck or Nick Cave or PJ Harvey, they all sort of worship her. And then, and you, you, suddenly, you get this sort of flotilla of younger admirers from Devendra Banhart to 
the great Joanna Newsom, who mm-hmm. I, I just worship. Yeah. <laughs> quite <laughs> rightly, and, quite and rightly. She, yeah, and she plays on Look After Drink, doesn't yeah. she? She's on that record. I mean, you know, and, and I, I love her. So so you're fated by all these younger people. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a lovely thing. It is a lovely thing. Even if you never write another song. <laughs> Are you still in touch with with any of those? Are they all still? Are they kind of phoning you up and, and, and demanding that you make another record? <laughs> I'm, I'm still very much in touch with Devendra. Um, yes, he's just yeah, he's a great light in my life. Not so much Joanna because she's she's really I don't know what has happened to her musically, but she's definitely got a family now, and I think. That's mm-hmm. her important focus. And yeah, Animal Collective, yes, I'm still in touch with, with Josh a bit. And yeah, Glenn Johnson, the Piano Magic, yeah. I saw him the other day. It was just so lovely. It It is really brilliant that I am still in touch with all these yeah. young people who, who mm-hmm. took me on and made a place for me. You know, they, they really mm-hmm. did, especially Joanna and, and Devendra, who... You know, I see it written that I, I was an influence on them. I wasn't. I wasn't. And mm-hmm. I, I, they made a place for me. And, uh, of course, I'm forever grateful. That's, that. that's lovely. It's a fantastic mm-hmm. story. I mean, it's sort of been talking about second acts in people's lives. I mean, this is how quite lucky extraordinary. Is that? How lucky, how fortunate I am. Well, and the book is a sort of third act in a way, isn't it? I mean, so I, the, the the last sort of specific question I would ask you in this context is: I mean, are, are, you're a wonderful writer. You're a natural born writer. Are you writing? Are you likely to write any other books? I don't know. I've been so completely okay. swept away by what has happened <laughs> with, yes. with, with, with with making this book that I I don't know. But you're you're right about the third part of my life but Mm -hmm. but yes there there was (laughs) doing away with the music and the music coming back again but now with this book it does feel as if there's another whole bit of my life ahead that I hadn't foreseen Mm. whether I write again or not I don't know there's a bit in the book about our year in Ireland where we had so many crazy, crazy adventures. It was the most amazing time. And I would love to write about that. Not particularly a whole book about it, but I would <laughs> love to write that part yeah. because it was extraordinary. And and there wasn't room for it in the book. Sure. But yes, whether I write more songs or not, I don't know. My guitar is sitting here looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, looking, 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 beseeching me at you. And this extraordinary <laughs> this computer which you've taught yourself to record mm. and everything, it's 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 you know, it's, it's I mean I do and Jasper and I both do some of that ourselves and it's not easy. You know, it's <laughs> you know, <laughs> an enormous amount Well yeah. but it but it was wonderful when I was making Hartley because I had Pro Tools on one laptop. I had Logic on another one by the side of it. And then I had a, a, a little old air next to them where I could write to people and say, what do I do now? What, 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 what? <laughs> <laughs> it was lovely because Logic and Pro Tools are so different, but each one had something yeah. that I needed. And it was a great, great adventure. But now if I were to go back into Brilliant. Pro Tools, I'd probably forgotten entirely how <laughs> to <laughs> I, know, I know the feeling yeah there's a, there's a program called amateur tools apparently oh, really? uh, for those who's <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's no. good. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, last year, I wanted to just touch on the late Robert Kirby, the third of the pieces that were featured in connection with you on the Rockstar Pages homepage is Colin Irwin's obituary of four. I never know what, which preposition to use. Is it obituary for or obituary of? Neither sounds correct, yeah. but he wrote Robert's obituary in 2009 and it mentions you and just another diamond day. And of course, Robert is the arranger who who plays the recorders and things and so forth on 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 that record and who of course worked with nick drake as well and was at cambridge with nick drake and i hope it's okay but i'd just like to talk briefly about nick because nick is also sort of in the ether at the moment because it's 50 years since his final album pink moon and you write about him in the book you you write about joe boyd (laughs) bundling you off to do some writing (laughs) writing with nick two very shy young people and it's almost excruciating to read (laughs) but but i mean the fact that you 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 well, you knew Nick to say hello to. I don't know whether it was much more than that, but would you mind just talking briefly about about Nick? And then we're going to hear a clip of Joe talking about Nick that may jog some other memories. Right. Do you want me to talk about him now or after? I tell you what, why don't we why don't we play that first clip? Because okay. because actually it sort of it does dovetail rather well with with how you write about nick so we're going to hear this vashti so this is joe talking about nick nick's appearance and how he remembers nick and specifically how he remembers nick's hands and fingers one of the things i've lately kind of rediscovered about him, which I guess I, I was certainly aware of at the time, but it kind of got lost in the general, mm-hmm. were his, was his hands and his guitar technique. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, he had unbelievably strong fingers. Right. And I remember I just now, when, for some reason now, whenever I try to conjure up the image of Nick, right. one of the things which is very clearly in focus is these very big and strong fingers. Right. And dirty but strong and grown out fingernails <laughs> right right um and um um you know usually had rather unkempt hair and right was kind of was i mean he tended to look a bit out of focus <laughs> right generally just because he was he never pulled himself together sort of in the way he dressed or combed his hair or whatever. Right. But these hands, the minute they got around the guitar, were absolutely in control and clear and clean and strong and Hmm. absolutely sort of in total control. Yeah, so this is Joe talking to Jerry Lim in, I think, 94 or 5, when the Way to Blue compilation is about to come out. And it's just fascinating hearing that. And I, I mean, we could probably talk, you know, for hours just about Nick as a guitar player, because I do think he's one of the greatest guitar players. I mean, we all talk talk about Hendrix and Clapton and whoever the hell it might be. But I think Nick is, as an acoustic picking guitar player, 
extraordinary. Yeah, but Barney, actually, what he says, what Joe says uh, about that, relates to those very people you mentioned. If you look at like photographs of Robert right. Johnson, the blues yes. guitarist, he's got huge hands. You look at yes. pictures of Jimi Hendrix, huge hands. That These yes. people playing this delicate instrument, but they've got meaty mitts to play them with. <laughs> yes, yeah. So do you remember the meaty mitts? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to use that unfortunate phrase. Sorry. Oh, yeah. I never what do you remember him. of Nick? I never saw him play guitar. I never right, because he played the piano that played afternoon. The piano, and I actually didn't, I couldn't see what he was doing because he had his back to me. Yeah. This was when Joe decided it would be a great idea to send me to Nick's house, uh, but for us to try to write a song together. Well, I had a tiny baby by then, and Nick was sitting at this upright piano. And I love what Joe says about him being slightly out of focus. I remember just this sort of black clad, rather dusty kind of person. Back <laughs> to me. And I was sitting on a sofa and I had my baby and I had my guitar. And every time I put my baby down to pick up my guitar, the baby cried. And I, I just, I, I've said it before that I have this clear, clear image of Nick's shoulders going higher and higher and higher. Right. Until I knew yeah. that there was no way. And he never turned around. And I had met him in, in Joe's office before that. And he had turned away, turned to the wall. Yeah, and, so, and, and I think maybe that was, he was still feeling like that at his piano. He didn't want to engage. And I couldn't. <laughs> so yes. It was a kind of crazy idea of Joe's to think that either of us could have collaborated on anything when we were both so shy you know sure i i mean you know, it is what record producers do often they'll think right this isn't working maybe we can stick this person with that person and something's yeah. going to happen yeah. and more more often than not doesn't i mean i'll just briefly i i, I was sent by my company to write songs for lamont dozier of holland dozier holland oh. and i spent i spent a week in, in Sino and we hated each other's guts <laughs> from the and absolutely nothing whatsoever came out of it so you know these sort of imposed things that frequently yeah. don't work. Yeah, that's right. Yes. And I've never been able to actually collaborate with anybody. <laughs> <laughs> How long did that did that writing session last or not last, not last. Probably not more than an hour. You know. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. He, wow. he was tinkering away on the piano, certainly, but, mm. but not making anything, you know, and not mm. not uh Certainly not communicating. Well, I mean, he was in a bad place in all kinds of respects. Really bad place. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Maybe Joe thought I could cheer him up, but he sent the wrong person to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure anyone could have cheered Nick up at that point. I I mean, it is a desperately sad story. I do Uh think he's. I tell you what, why don't we just listen to Joe? talking about i think he uses the phrase romantic doom and what a kind of almost sort of keatsian figure nick was so let's hear that clip jasper famous but a fruit tree so very unsound it can never flourish till its stock is in the ground well if you listen to his songs you can hear that there's an element of Romantic doom, right, and predict prediction, right, in the songs, right. Sure, I mean fruit tree, which is one of the first songs he recorded, mm-hmm. 
talks about an artist not being appreciated until he's dead. Right, and hanging on a star, too. Yeah, well, that's all the way at the end. Was, you see? That's all the way at the end. Right, and it's, and it's um, still there. Which is another side of it, which is that I think, you know, there are a lot of different sides to Nick, and, and in some ways he seems to have a very clear vision of himself as troubled as he was. Right. But there were conflicts, and there were, you know, on the one hand, he didn't want to go out and play. Right. On the other hand, he wanted to be a star. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And he was rather taken aback that his music wasn't, didn't sell more records. Yeah, I mean, I find this really fascinating because I, the, the romantic myth very much sort of says, well, you know, Nick was so cripplingly shy and depressed and romantic <laughs> that he would never have wanted to be a star at all. And of course, nobody who you know starts performing and recording doesn't want to be a star, period. Not even Vashti Bunyan. Um, <laughs> this effect is yeah. extraordinary. I, I didn't know about this because I'm not sure I'd ever listened to this Joe Boyd audio the right way through, but he, but he talks about, because Joe moved back to America. He moved to LA to work at Warner Brothers in Bur Burbank. As I'm sure you know, Vashti, yeah. I think he was working on the kind of audiovisual side. And for a moment, there's this possibility that Nick might move to LA for at least a period and there was a plan to do a sort of showcase at the Troubadour and you suddenly think oh my god you know could Nick have fitted into that um David Geffen apparently really really wanted to you know sign him and you sort of think oh my god there's a parallel universe where Nick you know becomes part of that you know Asylum Records Laurel Canyon scene and but Joe <laughs> probably rightly said no la is not a wise place but you can't even imagine nick drake yeah. in la but a he couldn't drive and you know and i think joe is probably right but then you sort of think well you know what bit of sunshine bit of swimming a few palm trees you might have pulled him out of that of his terrible <laughs> depression i couldn't help thinking that yes a bit of acknowledgement a bit of acknowledgement of his Genius might have really helped. Yeah. I, I, the, the thing is, I don't think he'd have noticed acknowledgement. Really? You know, the, the, I, I think, I think, you know, he was getting. I mean, all right, within a fairly small circle, he was getting a lot of acknowledgement here. I think he was so low and so down into his own self that I don't think he'd have. I don't think it made any difference. I think that's just who he was. Mm. Uh -huh. I mean, Joe oh, talks fast. A psychiatrist, right? Yes. Well, <laughs> talking about talk about talking about amateur sort of psychology. I mean, Joe, one point, very interesting, talks about you know upper class repression, and he doesn't mention boarding school syndrome. But I mean, we know that Nick went to Marlborough, and you know, uh, and and came from a, a privileged background, and and it, you know, I mean, clearly had some problems. I mean, whatever caused those problems. I don't know whether he had any sense of, of that, Vashti, or just did not get close enough to him to really know. I, I didn't get close enough to him to know yeah, um, when he yeah. turned his back on me. I thought he, yeah. he just didn't like me. He might thought you didn't like him. Oh, oh, maybe, so sad, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I think, yeah, I, I had no idea. I had no idea. Yeah. No one's ever going to know what what. Really no, I know, I know, um, I know. That 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 adds to the romance of it, I suppose. But I can't bear 
it being romantic because it was tragic. Yeah, yeah it wasn't romantic for him, for no, sure, it was, was it? not romantic for him at all. And that last album, I mean, I think such a central part of the Nick Drake, you know, myth or reality mm. is, and we'll hear an outro clip at the end where Jerry Lim asks Joe why he didn't produce the third album, Pink Moon, uh-huh. which is a completely stripped down, bare bones record that he just makes with John Wood. And it's this, I think there's like one overdub on it. Otherwise it's just Nick and his guitar. I mean, I think it's a masterpiece, Beautiful. but it is a masterpiece of, of loneliness and depression. It's pretty dark, you know, I mean, Black Eyed Dog. I mean, these are harrowing songs. They genuinely are, not to overcook it, but, but, but they are beautiful, I think. I think so too. And, and I think that he recorded that and then took it to Ireland, was it, and just put it on the desk and walked away. Yeah. And that was that. And, and what has happened yeah. to it since, would he, would he have loved that? Would he have loved that, that his music was taken up by commercials? Would he have loved that his music is behind so, in, in so many film tracks? And would he have loved that? Would that have saved him? Would it? Mm. Nobody's ever yeah. going to know. If he was just no, so absolutely. far gone, as you say, that he was so far down inside. Yeah. Just, but nothing, nothing would have saved him, really. Sure. I mean, when when I listened to Road again, I mean, I hadn't listened to Pink Moon for a while. I mean, I did. I I thought of the road you took up to the Hebrides, and that's that's an extraordinary song. And and things behind the sun. I mean, they're just. I mean, he was there. He's not my favourite singer in the world, but his songs and his playing, I think, are among the more remarkable things yeah. from that period. I will briefly say that he's also one of the worst influences in. <laughs> British musical history. Every single busker that you hate on the South Bank <laughs> wants to be Nick Drake. It wants to be Nick Drake. <laughs> I know. I yeah. Know. Yeah. I think there's some truth in that. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to just take a moment to say goodbye to a very different musician, very different kind of singer, Chris <laughs> Bailey of the Saints, who were the first great Australian like punk rock band. Actually, I'm not expecting you to comment on this but if you can just bear with us while we well remember chris bailey um i love the saints i loved chris bailey's voice i think he was one of the true like authentic punk voices andrew stafford one of our writers just wrote who's based in in australia or wrote an appreciation and and compares him you know not in terms of like sort of beautiful you know technique but compares that sort of punk snarl to the early Van Morrison. And I, I even think of someone like Liam Gallagher, who whatever you think of Oasis has, has got a great sort of punk snarl of a voice. And I, that first single, when it came out, I'm stranded, I thought was personally, I thought it was better than anarchy in the UK, but that's just me. And I love the fact that this band of, they didn't even look like punks, they were just dirty, unkempt dressed a bit like Nick Drake unwashed hair, and I got to know Chris a little bit and I thought he was just one of the great front men I mean, Chris carried on for a number of of years, different incarnations of the Saints, Ed Cooper who was their great guitar player, went a different direction with the Laughing Clouds, but I just want to we're running two pieces, one from May 77, which is Pete Silverton in Sounds, interviewing Chris on the phone before the Saints come up play their first gigs in london and he just talks about brisbane and the australian music scene how difficult it was to be 
a band like the Saints when most bands were just top 40 covers bands. He describes Brisbane, where they came from, as a big urbanised country town with the worst aspects of both those things. A couple of people have got the local music scene sewn up and um, didn't want the Saints playing in their bars. And then he talks about, there's a great song on the second album called Australia, O-R-S-T-R-A-L-I-A, which is a sort of withering attack on his, his his own country but he describes australia at that time as 50 times more conservative than england but in some ways we're in a similar situation after the fairly liberal period of the labor government we've got a big right-wing backlash with the same high unemployment as britain i'm not saying it's a police state yet but it's going that way mm. anyway farewell to chris bailey one of the great punk and australian front men i don't live this life all- I don't think we've lost anyone else of note in the last week, though what often happens with our podcast is we finish recording it and then somebody dies and it and it sounds as if we're just ignoring them. So if that's what's happened, <laughs> that's if what's happened. Ha- yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> it did happen with Meatloaf didn't it, the other day. We were barely barely signed off on the episode and 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 when we lost meatloaf so Vashti, if you would stay with us because mark is going to talk about some of the pieces he's added and if there's as i said if there's anything that kind of prompts a memory or a comment in you please just just jump in yeah last week i won't go into it because we already talked about it a week a couple of weeks ago muddy waters interviewed by max jones in 1958 he says, now I know that the people in England like a soft guitar and the old blues. Back home, they want to hear the guitar ring out. Uh, we did talk about that, so I won't go into it. This next piece is really interesting. This is Frank Bach, who's just come on board, Rocks Back Pages, for the Ann Arbor Sun in February 71. And he, he signs himself on this, 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 at the end of this article, Frank Bach, Minister of Culture for the White Panther Party. <laughs> and this is about Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin both recently dying of the 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 title of the piece is Victims of the Plague. And he says, we have seen too many of our best men and women lose their energy and find their lives through the use of bad dope. Sisters and brothers on the streets and in the ballrooms, those of us still holding jobs, going to school, in the army, or living at home, rock bands and so on. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tirade against basically heroin particularly. And this is interesting because Detroit and Ann Arbor in the late 60s, early 70s were absolutely kind of riven with what he calls pig drugs. The Stooges were falling to pieces under the weight of addiction. The Mm. MC5 had addiction problems. It was a real, real issue. So whilst it's about Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin, he's actually addressing the community about a kind of a broader problem. Really good stuff. Simon Reynolds, going before to 87, uh, Simon Reynolds on the Smiths. But that's the Smiths for you, a weird mix of the reactionary and the progressive. Luddite rockism and polymorphous androgyny, uh, which is a Sun Reynolds in action, really. <laughs> it's good stuff. Lastly, Fat Boy Slim, being interviewed by Andy Chrysal and Enemy 97. He says, I laid off the ketamine. It's really scary stuff unless you get the dosage right. Exactly right. Well, he's, he's true, but he obviously didn't try hard enough. <laughs> this week, it's marvellous to have this. It's a, it's a sort of a profile interview with Charlie Mingus by Robert Shelton from the New York Times in 62. He was just in the process of about to publish Beneath the Underdog, his 
extraordinary autobiography. And Mingus says, there's no such thing as third stream. There can be up to 126 streams. There is no jazz. There is no classical. There is only music. <laughs> Jasper, you're a, you're a Mingus fan. I love that the article, in the article he's referred to as Charlie Mingus. It's great. You know, usually we think Charles, of him as Charles. Yes, now, Charles. But, you know, but I, I think Mingus is fantastic. And I think that he's obviously, everyone knows Mingus are um, but then like I was earlier listening to album that came out about almost the same time, which was recorded almost the same time, Blues and Roots, with the absolutely wonderful moaning on it. And it's he's just he was a, a true composer, yeah, as well as as a fantastic musician as well. I just I I, I love Mingus. He also does this extraordinary thing of he he sort of emerged during the bebop period, and yet his career carried on through what would now be characterized as soul jazz, through into free improvisation and everything in between. Yeah. Which is and at the very end of his life, of course, Joni Mitchell did that album with him. Yeah, that he didn't live to see finished and released. Which sadly, I think he's extraordinary. I, I really do. Yeah, absolutely agree. <laughs> Vashti, where do, where do you stand, if you stand anywhere, on jazz of, of that period or, or <laughs> figures like Charles Mingus? Is, is that is that something you listen to at all? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you should start. You never know. You might you might make a jazz record if you immerse yourself in the works of Mingus. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll go and do that this afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> That's your homework. <laughs> That's your homework for this afternoon. If you yeah. could just you thank know, you. Just if you could get back in touch later today and tell us how that went. Okay. This next thing's great. This is Pete Johnson in the LA Times in February '69. He's reviewing Dusty Springfield's Dusty in Memphis. I mean, just to get a review of this album on the site is just fantastic because it didn't get covered a lot in English papers, that's for sure. And he really gets, he says, the sound which emerges from the LP is not a hard rhythm and blues sound, but has the loose precision of other Memphis records. And there is a constant feeling of movement, even in the string arrangements. And Miss Springfield, it turns out, has a lot of soul which manifests itself in the relaxed feeling of her singing. She doesn't try to scream, a technique which would have been meaningless with her silky voice, but expresses herself with unconscious ease of a born blues singer. He gets it. I love it. Done about the rest of you. I think Dusty Memphis is one of the great records. Vash, you must have something to say about Dusty Springfield. Did you, did you ever meet her? Was she around? Uh, and no, 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 I never met anybody really. <laughs> <laughs> We're the first people you've ever met. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I always felt as if that was that was what I was supposed to be with somebody with the with that hair with those dresses. Yes, you know, and, yes. and that was so completely a long way from yeah. me. But I did love her voice, and her yeah. phrasing. I think I just I wanted to say that about Nick as well about his phrasing. Yeah. I think yeah, yeah I, I got away from that. But it, it, <laughs> that is what what really I love. Yeah, it's really interesting you should say that because she herself was really uncomfortable with the beehive and all and, yes. the, and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yet, you know, you went up to Scotland, she sort of hung in there and in some, not destroyed her, but really, it was very difficult for her. It was a tough, sure. tough life sure, being Dusty Springfield. It really, really, I'm sure it would have been. Yeah, yeah. 
did not have done. I could not no. on that road. The beehive. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's my lot. I don't know about you guys. Have you got anything to tell us about? I'll jump in with just a couple of things before asking Jasper. But I wanted to, because we have two new writers have come on board in the last week, 10 days. The first is Scott McLennan, an Australian writer. I don't know if you ever wrote about the Saints, but we've started the ball rolling with him. The piece that he wrote about the Swedish pop goddess, dance goddess Robin, who I adore from 2008. It's a nice piece. We don't have enough pieces about Robin. And she tells a funny story about collaborating with Snoop Dogg. And she says, it's just rather, rather sweet. She says, he was smoking, like, you know, we know what he would have been smoking in the studio all the time. But she goes, but I have been around smoke before, she says. <laughs> <laughs> Terribly sweet. Stop short of saying she's actually smoked. Yeah. She's been yeah, around. She's been around. I have been around I know smoke. smoke in general. We've got a piece in the library. One of our writers interviewed Snoop Dogg and made a mistake of smoking what Snoop was oh, smoking. Yeah. And yes. probably keeled over. And Snoop's mother saying, you know, he can get away with it, but I'm not sure you anyone else yeah. can. Oh, my God. My yeah. Calvin can cope. Yes, yeah. yes exactly. The second writer is John L. Walters. And I mention him not only because it's great to have him on board, but we've got ball rolling with him via an interview with Ry Kuda about the Chavez Ravine album 2005. And I mention that. Also because next week's sort of feature will be Rai and Taj Mahal, who are releasing their first, I think it's the first time they've recorded together since The Rising Suns, and it's an album dedicated to Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. So watch out for that. There's going to be a Rai Kuda audio interview from 1976, which I'm sure will be wonderful. Jasper, what about yourself? Thanks, Barney. First of all, I just wanted to mention, I was sort of hoping, Mark, that you might talk about the piece you had, the interview you added with Duke Ellington, Max Jones, Melody Maker 64, just because I adore, he's, you know, another fantastic, compo- true composer of, yeah, of that no, period. Yeah, I, I, I... I didn't because I thought we'd already talked about too much jazz. He, he's great. He says, <laughs> I, guess fate has been, I guess fate has been kind to me, as always. It doesn't want me to become too famous too That's young. exactly what I was about to read out. I just <laughs> love just, that. Just... It's fabulous. I wanted to mention, just to keep going on the jazz, actually, Edwin Pouncey. And we've recently acquired a few Jazzwise magazines and, and we've also added John Newey. I mean, he, he was on board for a while, but we've, we've added a bunch more of his pieces recently. He's the editor of Jazzwise. But this piece is Edwin Pouncey giving the story of ESP Disc originally Esperanto Disco label, which is just a, it's a very interesting story, you know, founded by a, by a New York music business lawyer, Bernard Stallman, who had a vision that he wanted to share with the world. After convincing himself that the international language of the future would be Esperanto, he decided to prove his point by releasing an instructional album of children's songs called Ni Canto en Esperanto. But then, you know, it went from there to recording like loads of free jazz, just all sorts of really out there stuff, which which is a, it's a very, very interesting label. Very out there label. stuff, so yeah. Mention that. Moving swiftly on to 
2018 David Burke on The Godfather of Pop, Michael McDonald, since a few of us have a kind of yacht rock interest. But also, <laughs> I actually picked this... <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> oh, good. Yacht can... rock. Barney, oh, we yeah. can explain. <laughs> yes. <to Ashley. laughs> Jasper, Jasper, you have a go to find well, yacht rock. Fundamentally, yeah. the yacht, it tells you all you need to know. It's kind of like 70s <laughs> no, studio perfection. It's... It, 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 <laughs> It's, I'm sorry. It's, I'm it's, sorry. It's Look at that competing in the yeah, definitions. Here. Yeah, and I'm I'm waving my finger here as well. It's essentially white guys impersonating high-end soul music, yeah. but with a very sleek production. Yeah, seventy studio the, perfection. That's what I said. He was in a going matter of that. You, you, you didn't yeah. give him a you chance. Didn't, you didn't give me a chance. Really. He's, anyway. got it, he's got it down, man. <laughs> <laughs> the question is: Is there going to be a sort of subgenre called super yacht rock, <laughs> made exclusively for oligarchs? Oh, um, <laughs> I actually picked anyway. this because there's a there's an interesting quote, and I thought it was interesting based on what we talked about earlier with with the idea of collaboration. David Burke asks Michael McDonald, "You've collaborated with a diverse range of artists, from James Ingram and Aretha Franklin to Thundercat and Solange. What makes a good collaborator?" And Michael McDonald says, "Someone who's willing to step away." The one thing I have some trepidation about with co-writing is I always hate it when, if something's not happening, only one of us thinks that. I don't want to spend a lot of hours on a song I'm not really feeling an affinity with. Don't put all your energy trying to breathe life into a corpse. <laughs> suddenly, suddenly oh, we're, back in, we're back in the room. In the room with, with Bastian. With Bastian. <laughs> yeah, I thought, I thought Mark that and was, Lamont. Yeah. I thought it was just a neat little thing. Oh, That's oh, extraordinary. Oh. And then lastly, I just thought it was funny. Phil Collins at Suncorp Stadium, Brisbane. Andrew Stafford writes for The Guardian. and it's, previously mentioned yeah, Andrew previously Stafford. Mentioned Andrew Stafford. And he kind of finds, finds himself, despite himself, really having a good time at Phil Collins' you know, huge, huge, huge show. Take Me Home is the single encore, and it's the only choice, really. Phil looks knackered. He gets to his feet once more and holds off stage again, backed up by his bandmates with a broad grin on his face. Everyone else is wearing one too. Everyone, that is, except for the poor kid, maybe five years old, who is crying and complaining to his mother, too much, too loud. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my lot. Oh, Brilliant. Uh, well, that's wonderful. Thank you, Jasper. And well, we've come to the end of this episode and it remains for all of us to thank you, Vashti, so much yes. for joining yeah. us today. It's, it's been, been such a fun. pleasure. Thank you. Such thank a you pleasure. So it really has. It's been marvellous, yeah. Really and, interesting. You know, just... <laughs> oh, good. good. Well, that's not what every guest says. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, you have to do it. <laughs> Yeah, including our colleague Tony Keynes, yeah. who thinks we, we generally have far too much fun on this podcast and there's far too much laughter. Oh. So Jasper will be editing out all the laughter from this episode. But just oh. to say again, for the benefit of our listeners, your book, Wayward, Fantastic. Just a Another Life book. to Live, is it's not a very long book. It's a really beautifully written book. It's an extraordinary story. I can't recommend it highly enough. Oh. And that goes for all your music as well. So, you know, yeah. more power to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> we will go out just with one last clip of Joe Boyd talking to Jerry Lim in uh, 1994. And this is basically Jerry asking him why he didn't produce Pink Moon and Joe explaining why not. So that's it. And on that note, Bye. goodbye. Bye. The 
way that he went about producing Pink Moon, mm-hmm. because I had offered to either to try and work with him either in California or to come back to England yeah. on a break or something to do his next record. Right. But he said, no, I want to do one very simple, just, just guitar. So I said, well, if, you want, if that's what you want, you can do it with John Wood. You don't need me. Oh, that's why you, so that's why you didn't produce it. I always wondered about that. Well, I was living in Los Angeles. It would have been awkward. Right. I was working for Warner Brothers, right. the film company. I was very busy. Right. But I, I felt that I would have made the effort to try and do something if he wanted to do another record that had the same qualities as the first two. Right. But he very much didn't. And, you know, in retrospect, that leads me to wonder whether he didn't like the results of Brighter Later, or whether he simply felt he did like it, but it was time to do something different. Please beware of them that stab and only smile to see why that was Joe Boyd in conversation with Jerry Lim in 1994, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Vashti Bunyan. Wayward is published by White Rabbit and available now. You can visit Vashti's website at anotherday.co.uk. The hosts were Bonnie Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. And the movement in your brain.